Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by our special guest speaker. So what we're doing the month of July is we're going to be starting a series, and it's called People That Got Angry With God, People That Screamed At God And Got Away With It. And what I would like to do this morning with the help of the Holy Spirit is I would like to do part two of a message that I spoke on a couple weeks ago. We all know it as the parable of the prodigal son, right? Or the parable of the lost son. So if you have your Bibles, if you would go to Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Before I get to the text this morning, I just want, I guess, give a disclaimer uh, of, I guess you could say, vulnerability that uh, I have been tested with this word over the past couple weeks. And before uh, giving too many details regarding how I've been tested, I, I think we can understand that many of us, as we live our lives, will either find our place as the prodigal outside of the will of God or the elder brother inside the church judging the prodigal outside of the will of God. And I think one of the things that we have to understand is we can be just as lost in the pig pen as we are lost in the pew. And this is a sobering reality when we understand the intention and the heart of the Father concerning us. And what I've understood about sonship, being a son of God, and when I say son of God, in the kingdom of God, men are brides and daughters are sons, right? So there's no gender discrimination here when I talk about sonship. But the reality of sonship is it's found right in between of religion and prodigal living. It's the definition of humility. I don't know if Chris Valentin penned this, but he says humility is knowing who you are in God and who you are outside of God. And it can also be said like this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less, right? So it's, it's a sobering reality to understand that many of us have been born again. We've been set free from our former lifestyle, but something happens when we start to derail from the will of God and forget how Jesus Christ has saved us with his blood. It's so easy to get into a lifestyle of works and performance. It's so easy to live our life on the treadmill of performance and somehow to get God's love for us and how good we are. And see, what we have to understand is this. God did not come in the form of Jesus to make uh, bad men good. He came to make dead men alive, right? And, and we were all in, we were all dead in trespasses and sins. And see, a lot of people that turn into elder brothers or Pharisees, somehow they think that like, okay, Jesus just came for the addict or they came for the adulterer or they came for the people that smell like the pig pen. But no, 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 no. Jesus spent just as much time ministering to the Pharisees as he did to the prodigal. So let's go to the text and check this out. So before we look at verse 11, let's look at verses 1 and 2 because we have to understand the context. Is Hannah Kendrick here? Hannah Kendrick, she, 
She got me this shirt, and I love it. Straight out of context, right? I said that a couple weeks ago. She got it for me. So thank you, Hannah, if you're watching. So Luke chapter 15, 1 and 2, it says, Then all the tax collectors, say tax collectors, and all the sinners, say sinners, drew near to him, that's Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees, say Pharisees, say scribes, complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them, so he spoke this parable to them. For time's sake, I'm not going to go over the parable of the lost sheep or the parable of the lost son. I'm just going to pick up in verse 11 the parable of the prodigal son, right? So in verse 11, he says, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine did eat, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion on him, ran, fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and in his found. And they began to be merry. So to go over just briefly what I talked about a couple weeks ago, the picture here is this. is This is not just a story that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. There is a reason, there's intentionality behind why he's using this particular story. Remember what we read about in Luke 15, 1 and 2, that there wasn't just tax collectors and there wasn't just uh, uh, Pharisees and scribes in the crowd. There wasn't just sinners, but there was also people that had been out of the will of God for so long. So Jesus is not just talking to one group of people, but he's talking to actually four different types of people, right? He's talking to the sinners and he's talking to the tax collectors and he's talking to the Pharisees and he's talking to the scribes. So there's a reason why he's talking about the younger son. When he He's talking about the younger son. He's appealing to the prodigals. He's appealing to those that have spent their life just rebelling against God, right? And see, I said a couple weeks ago, we serve a make me God in the midst of a give me generation, right? There's never been so much entitlement that I've seen except in my generation right now. We live our life with our hand out. We think that people owes us something. And if, if I could kind of just plumb line and zero in on the problem with our culture right now, it's the prodigal reality. We have our hand out expecting someone to give us something for nothing when we've done nothing to deserve it, right? 
But the father in his mercy says, okay, I'll go ahead and give you what you're asking for early. And essentially what the younger son was saying was, Father, you're dead to me. Because everybody knows that you don't get your inheritance while your father and your mother are living. You get your inheritance once the will or the testament has been instituted and that comes into action after they're dead, right? But he goes and he gets everything. And see, it's not just he gets money. Essentially what happened was the farm was divided in one third for the younger son and two thirds for the older son. So in order for the son to gather all, the text says gather all, he literally had to make his father's farm smaller by selling off acreage of the property. So this, this would have been an indictment on the family name. This would have made the family name look absolutely despicable and depraved in the village that they were living in. And he goes out and he spends everything on riotous or prodigal living. And I love when Jesus is telling the story. He never calls the son the prodigal son. Why? Because God never labels us by our dysfunction. God knows us by our sonship. He knows us by the blood of Jesus Christ. He sees us through the lens of the cross. So when Jesus is telling the story, he never calls him a prodigal son. He just said he wasted his inheritance with riotous or prodigal living. And then a famine comes and it literally bankrupts the son. How many of you guys know that in order for God to get your attention, sometimes he causes a famine or a crisis? We don't like to talk about that theology, but when we're a parent and we say, God, whatever it takes, get a hold of my son, whatever it takes, get a hold of my daughter, whatever it takes, get a hold of my family member, God's like, are you sure? Are you sure? Because we don't understand James 1, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And sometimes what looks evil and looks bad to our flesh is actually the will of God to get our attention. So the famine was from God to get the younger son's attention. And then it says, and no one gave him anything. I love this because if someone is living in addiction, if someone is living outside of the will of God, the worst thing that you can do is enable them as a parent. The worst thing that you can do is enable them as a friend or as a family member. Because it says he came to his senses when no one gave him anything. God has to literally strip you of everything to where there's... I always used to say to people, oh, I'm at rock bottom. Well, sometimes your rock bottom has a trap door and there's another rock bottom. <laughs> literally, your rock bottom's got to be a rock bottom. Where there's no way up but up. There's no way out but up, right? And this is what's going on with this younger son. And he, he comes to himself. It's a moment of repentance. And he walks back to the father's farm. And while he's still a long way off, the father sees him. What does that show about the father? That shows that the father is always watching the road. That shows that the father is always willing to receive lost sons home. That shows that it's never too late to come back to the father's house. No matter what you did, where you've been, who you've been around, that's the thing with shame. It keeps us from the father's house. So he had to get past the shame, walk back to the father's house, and literally it says that the father runs. Without going to, through too much history or culture, Near Eastern men, ancient men, they did not run in that time. 
For in order for them to run, they would have to pull up their garments and show their bare naked legs. And that's something they did not do. So he picked up his garments. He ran towards the young son. And this was this year for the first time I understood the purpose of why he ran and covered him. If there's a five-fold response of the father through repentance, he sees us. He has compassion towards us. He runs towards us. He covers us and he kisses him until I understood what Deuteronomy chapter 21 talks about. Deuteronomy 21 says that younger son should have deserved death. He should have, he should have been stoned by every villager that was living in his town. So the father knew that every neighbor would have probably come to that moment of seeing the lost son return home, stones in their hand, thinking they were doing the father a favor. But the father runs, covers him, and essentially what he says is, you got to go through my dead body. Jesus was prophesying his death at this point. He was prophesying his death. He says, I don't care where you've been, what you've done, I'm going to cover you with my blood. I'm going to cover you with the cross. Everybody's got to go through my, my dead body to get to you. I love it because the younger son never got to finish his prayer, never got to finish his apology. Essentially what the father did, he covered his mouth and he says, no, I'm not going to talk to that side of you because God never talks to the orphan in you. He never talks to the servant in you. And you see the transition. This son starts out saying, give me. He comes back saying, make me, right? That's what true repentance does in our life. We say, give me God. And then we get crushed by our circumstances. And the spirit of God generates a make me mentality, right? So he says, make me one of your hired servants. And God's like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. I'm not going to come back and receive you as a bondservant. I'm going to come back and receive you back into your full sonship. He covers him with the robe, which is the robe of righteousness. He gives him brand new shoes. Didn't really understood why he would need new shoes until I understood he probably pawned them. See, we don't understand that in this room. But I talked about this last week at Life Changers, and I asked how many of y'all pawned their shoes. About 50% of them raised their hand. They understand what it's like upon their shoes to get something that they want. The father's like, I'm going to give you some brand new shoes. I'm going to cover you with the robe, right? And then I'm going to give you the ring, which was the signet of the house. And what that meant was I'm going to trust you again. So when you go into the marketplace and you buy some horses or you buy some donkeys or get some hay or some food for the livestock, you can literally put the family crescent in the wax and you can charge that to my account. That's called full restoration of the son's rights. Amen. That was a fast overview. You ready for the new stuff? Let's get to it. All right. Verse 25. Everyone say older son. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fattened calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo! Everyone say, Lo! This is him. Say it again like you're in the story. Say, Lo! There you go. Lo! These many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. 
and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, everyone say son of yours. See how he detached himself away from relationship with his brother? This son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Hallelujah. So remember what's going on. Context is everything. There's not just sinners in the crowd, but there's the religious group in the crowd. And what Jesus is doing, he's using the elder son as a mirror for the religious. He's using the prodigal son as a mirror for the sinner. And see, this right here, I've said it before, but this, I believe, is the most scandalous text outside of John chapter 8 found in the Gospels. If you looked at the timeline of when Jesus told this parable and when he was crucified, it was about 60 days before. And if you look at the chapters before, he was offending the religious by doing miracles on the Sabbath. He was operating out of his full identity as a son, but he gets to this point and the religious are starting, the heat's being turned up. And if you notice in chapter 16 and 17, they're not just offended, but they're plotting how they might kill him. So what was it about this text that so angered the Pharisees and the religious crowd? See, they had never seen the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. We have to understand that reality, okay? To preach a different God of the Old Testament is a violation of the immutability of God. The immutability of God is the unchanging nature of God. See, God cannot stop being love. It's a violation of who he is. He cannot stop being merciful. It's a violation of who he is. But he also cannot stop being judge. It's a violation of who he is. So when they're hearing this story, they know the God of the Old Testament. And they're seeing the God or the Father. They're getting this. They're getting this story. But they're seeing this Father cover the younger son. And they're saying, my God doesn't do that. But Jesus, what he's doing here in this text brilliantly and masterfully is he's saying, because you've never accessed that part of God. That part of God is standing right in front of you, looking at you face to face. And what I find it ironic in scripture is blind men that could never even see Jesus cried out in Mark chapter 10, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But Pharisees that had two very good eyes could see the word of God made flesh in front of them and they never accepted him as who he was. That's just tragic to me. And they're seeing this father that's revealed that they've never seen before. And see, Jesus is using the elder son as the mirror for them. It says, now the elder son was in the back part of the farm. And he's wondering, he's questioning, what's all this music and what's all this dancing going on? And see, if we're not careful, 
the younger generation will knock the older generation's music. <laughs> See, we don't like Southern gospel. We don't like the older hymns. But you want to know why the older hymns were e even written, young person? It's because back in the 19th and 18th century, nobody could read. So it was a way for the reformers to teach sound theology, right? So the best theology comes from these older hymns, right? But see, the elder generation, we don't sometimes like the music of the younger generation because it's not our style, right? It's not what we've been used to. It's not what we've grown up in, right? But this is the thing. If they're dancing in here and they're shouting in here, and they're not dancing and shouting in the bar. Praise God for the music of the younger generation. And praise God for the music of the older generation. He's hearing music and he's hearing dancing. And he's wondering what these things meant. And then he goes to a fellow servant. And he goes, what's going on here? And see, what I got from this text is the elder son talks to servants before he talks to the father. He talks to other people before he talks to God. Uh-oh. See, this is what has pierced me over the past couple weeks. Because I found myself being this elder brother. I found myself talking about other people. I found myself talking about other people around me that were getting things that I was not getting. And it pierced me. Because I literally, in that moment of getting offended and anger rising up within me, I heard the Lord say, elder brother. Because everything that we teach from this platform, we're going to be tested by. Because if God wants to do something through you, he's got to do something in you first. So the word of God is going to be tested before you speak it. It's going to be tested after you speak it. It's going to be tested when you hear it. Because the enemy wants to divorce you from the truth of the word so you don't receive it and walk in it, right? So there was things that were happening all over the past couple of weeks. It seemed like everybody was being promoted around me. Everybody was being blessed around me. Everyone was getting things that I was not getting. And I literally was like, what's going on with this? What, what, how can they get this? I was talking to servants before I was talking to God. You want to know that that's the definition of gossip. You know what the Bible says about gossip in Proverbs? It says six things the Lord hates, seven things an abomination. God hates discord among brothers. Why? It's because the tragedy with gossip is if it's not true and they hear it, usually what they do is they do it because you already think it's true. I literally, when I was younger, I would be accused of things and I'm like, they already think I've, I've done it. I might as well just go do it, right? That's the tragedy with gossip. And see, this elder son wouldn't even go into the father's house. It said he would not go in. So number one, elder son's, are always angry. They're always angry. Why are they always angry? It's not, listen, it's not just a moment of anger like you're in your car and you have road rage, okay? It's not you just get angry with your younger brother or your younger sister, right? Or you watch Fox News, right, and get angry. I forgot to show that clip. Will you show this clip? Fox News has done to our parents what they thought gangster rap would do to us. <laughs> Come on, laugh. I'm just playing. I love Fox News. Okay, nobody thinks it's funny. All right. I guess that was just way too soon. All right. Sorry. He like, looks like Tony Montana. Come on. By the way, I would have done the same thing. Amen? All right. Okay. Elder 
Sons are always angry. See, I was supposed to, I was supposed to show that in the beginning and get you to laugh first instead of, I guess, right in the middle. And my, listen, what's going to happen is my wife's going to say, you did one thing wrong. You showed that stupid clip in the middle of your sermon. <laughs> Barry Sims, do you agree with my wife? No? I should have showed it, right? Amen. Come on. Hey, I got the elder's approval. I'm good to go. Amen. Come on. Elder brothers are always angry. What does that mean? That doesn't mean a moment of anger. That means this defection in their personality. Have you ever met someone that has a, like a chip on their shoulder? They're just, and, and usually, I, if I offend you, I don't apologize because the word of God is offensive. If you are in church for 35 years and you're nasty and you're angry, you need to repent for being an elder brother. You should not be angry in this house. This house is a place of worship, and it's a place where the Spirit of God is bringing things out of us. You're allowed to be angry for one day according to the Word of God. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. But you see, the elder brothers are in a perpetual, habitual lifestyle of anger. Why? Because they're focusing on the injustice around them. And see, you can't help but in our day, like... I'm about to get off of social media because I'm just angry. I'm like, God, how can they believe that? I, I'm seeing people that I go to high school with. I know what kind of home they come from. I know how they were raised. I know what church they went to. And then now they're 34, 35, 36 years old. And everything that they're posting and everything that they believe is a violation of every single point of truth that their church and their parents has taught them. And I'm like, how do you turn into that person? But you know what it is? That's an angry person that's well on their way to becoming an elder brother. Why? It's we're focusing on the injustice around us. Put up that slide about righteousness. Listen to this one. Self-righteousness is revealed in us when we observe the lack of righteousness in those around us. Look at this. Self-righteousness is revealed in us when we observe the lack of righteousness in those around us. So ready for this one? God will send a bunch of prodigals in your life to so get under your skin to reveal the self-righteousness within you. I, listen, I think God is using everything in culture right now to squeeze the church to see how we're going to respond. See, we're quiet. We want to be mad. We want to be mad. We want to be mad. said it before that patriotism is the new religion of the South. And it's really not a new religion. It's always been here. But what we honor is Jesus Christ over everything and his word over every single thing that we see. So when these things squeeze us, it reveals, man, I didn't know I had that in me. I didn't know I had that in me. I'm literally judging people that do not understand they should but at this moment they are so deceived by what's going on that it's like they're constantly walking around with a brain fart literally <laughs> come on i'm just trying to make you laugh because i know this is a hard one so self-righteousness is revealed in us when we observe the lack of righteousness without around us all right let me 
Let me maybe speak your language. I've used the text. I've used the word. I've used the words of Jesus. Let me see if I can maybe diagnose some of this in the house today. You've been trying to get pregnant for three years. You've gone to multiple doctors. You've tried everything from diets to nutrition to medication, everything. Everything you've tried. You're like the woman for 12 years that exhausted all of her resources going to the doctors, but she's still bleeding. You've tried everything. And then the high school senior gets pregnant with her boyfriend out of wedlock. What rises up within you? Let's get real. Those are in those moments that we scream like the elder. We scream and we say, Lo, Father, you see this? You see me? I've been trying to do this for three years. And she's not even married. And look, she has what I want. Let's get real. This is what happens all the time. See, jealousy has nothing to do with the other person. It has to do with what we are not getting. Doesn't have to do with the injustice out there. It has to do with the religion in here. God, do you see me? Lo, elder son, dad, I've been serving you my whole life. And you're going to do this for him and not for me? Do you know? How long I've been serving you, day in and day out, from 5 a.m. to 7 p.m., 14 hours a day. I haven't ever been with a prostitute. I've, I've never been in addiction. I've been trying for so long to do this. We scream at God. Businessman. I've been working faithfully at my company for 15 years. I just want to get that promotion I deserve to be vice president. I'm in 20 minutes before the day starts. I clock out after 5 p.m. when everyone else has gone home. I take my work home on the weekends. My kids hate me. And then the boss's nephew gets promoted before me. Okay, Mr. Nepotism. God, do you see this? Do you see everyone else getting promoted around me? Don't you see how long I've been serving you faithfully here? We get mad. How about this one? We go to the doctor. We go through test after test after test. And then we hear that evil C word. You know, that devil, cancer, that destroys bodies, destroys lives, destroys families. Maybe we get diagnosed with lung cancer. Right? And then our great-grandfather that's 98 years old that's been smoking for 70 years is just healthy as an ox. But we're 42 years old with lung cancer. We've never smoked a cigarette in our life. God, what's up with this? I've treated, I've treated this perfectly my whole life, and really none of us has treated our bodies perfectly. That was literally the cry of the elder brother. He says, Dad, I have never transgressed your commandment. Oh my gosh, what a lie. Lie, 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 lie. Did it look unjust? Absolutely it looked unjust. It always looks unjust. But God works these things around us. He sends us people as literally pieces of spiritual sandpaper 
to shave the religion off of us. To shave the religion off of us. To shave the religion off of us. We're angry. It's not moment. It's perpetual. Because literally we're just seeing everyone else get the favor of God around us, and yet we're left in this place of isolation, of this place that's without, this place that seems to have no favor. And see, if we're not careful, we will exhaust ourselves to somehow find the pleasure and the acceptance and the love of God when we already have it. We already have it. If we're in Jesus Christ, I told, there is a lack of just good teaching in some places, not here. We have the best teaching in the world here. But there is, I've gone to some places and I have looked at a guy that's been in addiction for 40 years, has lost his kids, has has been divorced multiple times, and I've looked at him in the eyes, and I've said, God doesn't love you anymore now that he will in 20 years, and he doesn't love you anymore in 20 years if you become the next Billy Graham than he did when you were in the crack house with a needle in your arm. Well, that's not, that's God. That's the reality of who God is. Remember the immutability of God? God can't not be love. For God not to love would be a violation of his nature, and he has to love. He loves the prodigal just as as much as he loves the Pharisee, and he loves the Pharisee just as much as he loves the prodigal. You, You can't separate the love of God. The love of God has been a shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. You can't violate God and divorce him from his nature. But yet, the pleasure of God is different than the love of God. We are accepted in Jesus Christ by the shed blood of Jesus on Calvary, not works of righteousness lest any man should boast. We didn't save ourselves. God saved us. You can't wake up one day and just decide to be saved. No one can come to the Father unless the Spirit of God draws him. And once the shed blood hits your life, you're accepted in the beloved of Ephesians chapter 1. But the pleasure of God is something totally different. The pleasure of God, listen, does come through works. Salvation doesn't come through works, but the pleasure of God does. But it's not working for love, it's working from love. You see that? It's working from an identity and a posture of rest and of sonship and knowing that the Father is so approved in who I am as a son and I am so accepted in heaven's sight by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I want to do the right thing. Ephesians chapter 2 says we weren't saved by works, but we were saved for works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the pleasure of God is different than the acceptance of God. Verse 28, verse 28. Elder brothers struggle with intimacy with the Father because of the sin of performance. Their life revolves around being a servant and not a son. You will struggle with the Father's love when you live your life on the treadmill of performance. Listen to this. 
And any time you fail, you always go back to servant mentality. See, if it's just, I want to shake people that don't understand this because I had to live through this. When you fail, I'm talking the most miserable failure of your life and you struggle getting into the presence of God, you still have the elder brother working in you that must be ripped out. But that's foreign to us. We say, well, you know, pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. No, it's not talking about you seeing God. It's talking about people seeing God in you, the wholeness of God in you, that no man may see the Lord in you. And see, if, if you can't go into the presence of God after the most miserable of failure, that's the spirit of religion that must be ripped out of your life. You've got to go running to the throne of grace after you've failed. And you know, listen, the litmus test of sonship can be tested by this. How quick can you get back into the presence of God after you failed? How quick can you, can you get back into the presence of God after you failed? But see, we somehow think that God is mad at us and God is angry with us. No, 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 no. God can't be mad and angry with a son. You want to know why? Because every time we make a mistake, all he has to do is to look at the person on the right side of him. And the son says, you see these whips, dad? Look. You see these holes? Look. You see these scars? Look. I paid for it for him. And God says, you're right. God is seated between the cherubim on the mercy seat. And according to Hebrews chapter four, the high priest has passed through the heavens and the blood of Jesus is put on the mercy seat. And now when the father sees you, he sees through the mercy seat that has blood on the top of it. This is the gospel. But somehow we think that the blood doesn't apply to us after we failed. No, 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 no. The blood is even on you when you failed. Well, you're preaching licentiousness. No, I'm preaching the gospel. Because if you're truly his, you're going to come back. The enemy wants to keep you from coming into the house. The elder son would not go in. He thought his dad was, was, was unjust because he was sitting there living a life on the treadmill of performance. And he's like, man, I have done everything to serve you and to follow you. And you're going to do this for him. And the father's like, all that I have is yours. You don't see it. It's for us. It's for us. It's for us. Verse 29, and I'm going to wrap up here. Everyone stand up. Everyone stand up, please. Pastor Dan. Hey, Ja, you want to sing Good Father? You want to sing Good Father, bro? Come on up here, bro. Come on up here, bro. Verse 29. Notice this. Everyone say, give me. Say it again. Say, give me. Notice what the elder son, he has the same language of the entitled younger son. He says, Father, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Do you see this? Do you see that the elder son really had the heart of a prodigal? And do you see the role reversal here? 
if the prodigal is not careful, he becomes like the elder brother. And if the elder brother is not careful, he becomes like the younger son, the prodigal. Do you see this? This is the tension of living for God is somehow thinking that my works and my good behavior finds me pleasure in God's sight, and it does, but working for that and not from that is where we get in bondage. And then the younger son, this is where we have to, this is where we struggle. See, churches sometimes love when younger sons get delivered from all of this mess and they still have a performance addiction, and then they work them to death because we can become addicted to ministry and we can become addicted to church. That's the definition of religion. Going through the worship motions without Jesus in the center. So the reality of this is that the father ran to the prodigal And guess where else the father ran to? He ran to the elder brother. He ran to the elder brother and he ran to the prodigal. God is never intimidated by our anger. God is never intimidated by our screaming. In the moment of sheer frustration, the best thing to do is to scream. Well, you're saying to scream. He already knows it's in you. Nothing is hidden from this sight. You might as well just get it out. It's called tattling before God. You tattle in your prayer closet. You tattle about the injustice. You tattle about people getting promoted. You tattle about the baby you're not receiving. You tattle. You tell God about it. And God's like, he comes in with that still small voice. Thank God he doesn't scream back. What would it look, if God screamed back, the earth would not be here. (laughs) He doesn't scream back. Gently, he says, all that I have is yours. Now, why don't you just stick around, contend, and find out what's yours with your name on it. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.